just like to say thank you to, to Alison for, for opening our, our, our service and leading us in worship and to Louise and Gwen. I know it's been a, it's been a busy uh, weekend in the Cochrane household and uh, we want to extend our congratulations again to Ronnie and Gwen on the birth of their third grandchild, granddaughter, little Anna and uh, dad, Brian and mum Sonia are all home and, and doing well. So yeah, we continue to pray uh, for you folks. We pick up our, our study in the, the book of Acts um, at the, the point, as I mentioned, oh, too far on, the point where widespread persecution has begun under the leadership of Saul. Uh, Stephen, uh, you remember, has become the, the first Christian martyred for his faith. Uh, you remember how, uh, cast your mind back a number of weeks, how we looked at the end of chapter 7, uh, where we read, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And I suppose... For some people, even people today, looking in on this episode of the church could come to the conclusion that it was a bad day. It was a bad day for the church and it was a bad day for the apostles. It was a bad day to be a Christian because Saul and, and others systematically set out on destroying the church. They would move, simply move from house to house, taking Christians by force and imprisoning them. But what we see from scripture is that, in fact, there are no bad days where God is concerned. But true enough, in those moments, everything would have seemed pretty bleak. It would, have, it would have appeared that the church in its early stage was on her last legs. But in reality, the complete opposite was taking place. Remember Christ's words to his disciples just in chapter 1, just before he was taken uh, up to heaven. And there we, there we read, uh, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what we see is that the, the widespread persecution is actually what leads to the spread of the church and the spread of the gospel. Because the more the church is oppressed by the world, the more the Lord protects his bride and the truth of his word. It has echoes of um, Joseph's words uh, in, in, in Genesis, Joseph's words to his brothers at the, at the close of the book of Genesis. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And that is still true for believers today. What we can perceive as setbacks, God is actually using for his glory and for our growth. What we see as maybe detours from uh, the path of life are in fact the ways in which God is, is leading us into greener pastures. So do not 
be discouraged. If you are discouraged today in your walk, do not be discouraged or do not be dismayed when, when things don't turn out the way you might have hoped. Because God has a bigger and he has a better plan for your life. And we see something of this taking place in, in chapter 8 of Acts. We read from, uh, from verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds, when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks. Evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. And significantly, that's just prior to what we read earlier, significantly, this work of God through persecution and the, and the spread of the church leads us to a man of great interest. A man named Simon the sorcerer. And what is important to consider this morning is the work of God in the lives of individuals. People matter to God. The flip side of this, however, is that people, individual people, can cause great harm and can inflict horrendous atrocities in the lives of innocent people. We saw that once again in the news this morning, another mass shooting in Texas, a number of people killed and injured. And we see something of this, this attitude uh, in the person of Simon. We also see how this event that's recorded for us brings to our attention a very important theological question, which has to do with salvation or lack thereof. But before we come to that, let's, before we come to that, let's find out a bit more about Simon the sorcerer. It is agreed that Simon was from a small village called Gita not far from a nearby Roman city named Flavia Neapolis. Flavia Neapolis translates as the new city of Flavius Emperor, Flavia Neapolis. And all we know is that he is very well known to the people of Samaria because he has been performing sorcery and his magic for a considerable period of time. And sorcery and magic was very common in the ancient world. Some people would have performed demonstrations to, to trick the mind, sleight of hand and, and various other means. Others, however, were said to have performed, uh, said to have been empowered by, by Satan. And it is agreed that this was the case with Simon. He drew his power from the prince of lies. He drew his power from Satan himself. And any act of sorcery or magic is strongly condemned by God in Scripture. In Deuteronomy, uh, in chapter 18 and verse 9, we read, When you enter the land the Lord your God has given you, do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or who consults the dead. Anyone who does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable practices, the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. You must be blameless before the Lord your God. So what we see Simon and others like him doing is an absolute abomination unto the Lord. But what is probably most significant about this is that Simon 
is totally unaware of it. Totally unaware of it. Because in the, the wake of, of, of hearing and seeing Philip, as, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Christ, Simon was baptized into the early church and he followed Philip everywhere. And this is frightening. It's frightening. It's frightening because it shows us that Satan has the capability to use us without us even being aware of it. Simon was not aware. Now, there's a fine line here. On either side of that line sits on one side the true believer who has received the Holy Spirit. And on the other, the non-believer who gives the impression that they are a believer when in fact they are not. And Satan can use that unbeliever to, to spread gossip and rumors, to act in ways that are childish and disrespectful, to give the impression on a Sunday that all is well, but come Monday morning they are as far from God as they have ever been. And to live in such a way is one indicator that they are not saved, that their, their lives have, have not been transformed by the gospel. They are not a new creation. And the scary thing about it is that in every pew, in every church, across all of God's green earth, there are people like that. And it's frightening. It's frightening because Satan is using them to pervert the church without them even being aware of it. That's a power that he has. Some of the greatest struggles that the church endures aren't external, but they are in fact internal. Simon, who is never mentioned in Scripture again, does however continue to have a very strong following. In fact, it is believed that he became one of the, the leaders of what was known as the Gnostic heresy. It was a teaching which deviated considerably from the truth of God's word and caused major, major problems for the early church. Now we'll come back to Simon, but before we do, there is one other significant aspect of our text this morning that we need to consider. And that is that the gospel has come to Samaria. Now during this time, Samaritans had been referred to by the Jews as half-breeds. We read in the Old Testament and as a, as a result of, of the, the Assyrian captivity, that when Assyria captured the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 BC, some of them were taken into captivity while others were left behind. Now the ones who were left behind, they intermarried with the Assyrians. So they were neither fully Hebrew nor were they Gentiles, but they, were, they became a mix of both. And they had, their, they had their, their own versions of the first five books of the Old Testament, and they had a very unique form of worship. And the greatest tension between them, these Samaritans and the Jews, was that they did not, the Samaritans, they, they did not acknowledge Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem as a center for the worship of God. They believed that the true temple was located on a place called Mount Gerizim. If you remember the conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well, she said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem this is a place where men ought to worship. And that was the biggest tension between the two, um, the two religions. And because of this, the Samaritan people were despised by the Jewish people. 
To the Jews, the Samaritans were classified as the lowest, the absolute lowest of the entire human race. And alongside this, the Jews believed that the Samaritans were outside of God's grace, that it was impossible for them to receive salvation. A Jewish person would even have traveled through a Samaritan town, they would have bypassed it. But we've seen how Christ how Christ was the first to, to break down those cultural and religious barriers by traveling through Samaria, by meeting the woman at the well and, and offering her the gift of eternal life. And of course, in one of his parables, the Lord used a Samaritan man as the, as the hero of the story, indicating to us who our brother truly is. And now we have Philip making his way to Samaria through Samarian villages and proclaiming to the Samaritans the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Christ. And this is shocking. We, there, there, is, there is absolutely no comparison that, that I can think of in our culture today that would come anywhere near how controversial and utterly unprecedented this is. Jews believed that the Samaritans were a lost cause. They were lost. But Jesus came and he showed that this was not the case. You see, there are no, no lost causes. There are only lost sheep in need of a shepherd. And unfortunately, we, we too can, um, can have the, the same attitude as the Jews once had. We may... We may we may look at certain individuals and, and deem them to be a lost cause, that they are so far from God that they can never know salvation. And whenever, it may be members of your family, and when we begin to believe that lie, it causes us to give up praying for them. Perhaps you've been praying for somebody and you've just given up. It causes us to give up witnessing to them and sharing with them the good news that salvation is for all. And when we do that, we have failed to properly understand the message of the gospel. The gospel doesn't call us to, to sort out our lives and clean ourselves up before we come to Christ. The gospel calls us to come to Christ in order that he would make us clean. That he would forgive us our sins. That he would impart to us the gift of eternal life. And some still believe that if they, if they live a good life, if they come to church, if they believe that there is a God and even believe that Jesus died for their sins, that this will be enough to secure them a place in heaven. Others believe that by their works, by working hard and doing good, they'll maybe get to heaven. Above the entrance to the concentration camp in, in Auschwitz, Germany, were the words, Arbeit macht frei. The words mean work makes free. And it was a bold-faced lie suggesting that if the, the prisoners, those who were imprisoned in Auschwitz, if they worked hard, they would be given liberty. And the promised freedom was a horrifying death. And many people believe that if they do their best good works that they will earn heaven. And this, however, is false. It's fake. They will learn too late that good works do not earn freedom. It's only Christ's blood that liberates. He died to give us freedom from the penalty of our sin. And for the first time, the very first time, the Samaritans were getting the message. They were being baptized and they, they were putting their trust in Christ. And Luke tells us that Simon, the magician, himself believed and was baptized. 
And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. And now we return to where we began as we consider that important theological question, which has to do with salvation or lack thereof. From verse 14 we read, When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now there's a lot of discussion about this event. Questions are asked as to the, uh, to the, the, the coming of the Holy Spirit into a person's life. Does it only happen uh, when one who has been appointed by God lays their hands on another person to receive the Spirit as we read in this passage? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14, teaches us that the Holy Spirit is the seal of salvation for all those who believed. Paul writes, having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. But most likely... The reason for the laying on of hands to allow the Holy Spirit to come is the means by which the Samaritans acknowledge that salvation is from the Jews. That Jerusalem is the home of the true temple of God. They are recognizing that. They are repenting of their past failures to truly know and worship God as he is. And when the Spirit comes upon them, it is a clear indication that they are now grafted into the church of Jesus Christ. But we receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, by simply receiving the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. But through the laying of hands, the apostles were gifted with the ability to, to manifest the indwelling of the Spirit into a person's life. It was very clear when that happened, and therefore it didn't leave anyone in any doubt as to whether they had received salvation. But here's where Simon is totally, totally misinformed. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. You see, Simon believes that the power he sees in Peter and John is something that can be purchased. That it's a secret, some sort of secret ability that he believes he might be able to have for himself by paying for it. And to, 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 to gain this ability would only boost his reputation as a great magician. But he doesn't get it. And keep in mind that he has been baptized and has become somewhat of a follower of the apostles. That's very important because it is a stark reminder to us that even though we may have been baptized as a child, even though we've, we've gone through Sunday school and Bible class, even though we may have become a full communicant member of the church, even if we are actively involved in the life and witness of the church and worship there every Sunday, there's still the possibility that we are not truly saved. And if we are not truly saved, then it's all for nothing. 
and life will have been all for nothing. If we go to our grave without the knowledge that we are truly saved through the death of Christ. That we have turned to him for forgiveness and salvation and the filling of the Holy Spirit. And the question that you must ask today then is, have you done that? Have you truly, truly asked Christ to be your Lord and Savior? That you've truly recognized that you are a sinner and that there is a, a massive gulf between you and God and that no amount of good living will ever be able to close that gulf. That, in fact, you've given your life to God and can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the glorious truth of the gospel is that every time it is presented to you and to I, we, you are given the opportunity once more to make things right with God. How many times... You know, how many times have, have you been presented with the gospel and have walked away and said, ah, not now, God. Someday, maybe. But not now. And the reason that we do that is because we love our sin too much. We love our sin too much, but it is our love of sin that will take us to the grave lost and separated from God for all eternity. And maybe you wonder today, we've asked this question, how could God love me? Why would Jesus die for me? But what we must come to realize is that it has nothing to do with how lovely or how horrible we think we are. Nothing. But it has everything to do with Christ and his love for us. That's why we sing. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus in Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song will ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. You know, let's not miss the point that Jesus is making here, like how Simon missed it. But let's embrace it with all our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength by giving our lives to him and welcoming him as our, as our savior and our redeemer and as our friend. That's what he longs for. Let us pray. Lord, search our hearts. Indeed, Holy Spirit, search our hearts this day. And remind us that you are a God of love, but you're also a God of justice. You're the God who is fully aware of the wages of sin, the wages of what await those who, who choose to live, to live in sin and to live in disobedience to you. You know that future. Therefore, Lord, you died so that we would not die that death. Such is your great love for us. 
And you've shown that love by, by sending your disciples, your apostles to those who were deemed as the absolute lowest. You could not go any lower. And you demonstrated your love by, by offering them the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus and the laying of hands and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Such is your love for, for them and for us. And Lord, help us to realize, if we have not already realized yet, that our life is in vain. It is all for nothing unless it is driven by the Holy Spirit and a love for you and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, you are presenting us with that gospel once again today. If we have left on other occasions and said, not today, God, I'm not ready. I love my sin too much. Lord, that you would convict us this day. You would give us a holy hatred of sin and a vision of what an eternity lived in sin will be like. Lord, help us to be real. To be real before you, to be real with ourselves, and to be real before others. Lord, you love us and you long to embrace us. That we would all stand and one day be able to declare that truth. I stand amazed in the presence, the actual physical presence of Jesus and still wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Lord, hear our prayer, for it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and we're going to sing those words as we close our service. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene.